We've got a, a difficult passage this morning, difficult in terms of some uh, tricky ideas to think about, but also difficult in terms of the uh, content and topic, a bit like last week in many ways. So I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray as we look at this, uh, this tricky to understand at points chapter, but also hard hitting chapter, uh, that you would help me to teach it clearly and faithfully. But more than that, we pray that you would give us uh, minds willing to grapple with it and hearts uh, ready to respond to it in repentance and faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we heard some of the hardest hitting words of Scripture, didn't we? Uh, uh, our preacher last week, Dave, joked that it was our Mother's Day special. We chose it especially for Mother's Day, uh, a passage that focused on the fact that sin is very, very serious and God's wrath is very, very real. Uh, what a passage uh, for Mother's Day. And so last week, Dave really helpfully showed us humanity's greatest problem. Remember, he, he talked about how uh, we're in a hole uh, and, and we can't get out of it. Uh, people might think our great problem is climate change. They might think our great problem is, is cost of living pressures. That's what it was on the front page of the paper this morning. But no, our greatest problem is our sin and God's righteous judgment of our sin. That's our problem. Our problem is that we are sinners uh, and God is righteous and God has promised to judge sin. Uh, and so last week's passage told us the essence of sin is not all those things we do. It's not that long list of things we read. The essence of sin is that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, the essence of sin is actually our attitude to God. Humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie instead of worshipping God we worship his creation, whether that's an idol made of wood uh, or, or the modern worship of ourselves, where we just make ourselves the gods of our world. And, and because of that, it says, God actually hands us over to sin. Uh, he lets us do whatever our sinful hearts want to do. Uh, and so chapter one was actually pretty graphic uh, about the sin of our world, wasn't it? It was pretty graphic what it described, whether from sexual immorality through to greed and, and envy and arrogance. It was an incredibly dark picture in Romans chapter 1. And I think there would have been two different types of people here listening last week. Uh, most of us would fall into one of these two camps, though some of us would manage to sort of straddle both and, and be both at the same time. There would have been people here who'd be thinking, that is me that Paul is describing. There would have been people here, that is exactly what I was like before I became a Christian, or perhaps that's still me. I still struggle with these things. So that's, that's one group who would have been listening. Then there's another who might have been thinking something along these lines, you tell them, Paul, or you tell them, Dave, as he, as he was preaching. That is exactly what our world is like. That is exactly what, what those other people are like, and I'm so glad I'm not like that. I remember back when I played rugby many, many years ago, you might be surprised to know I wasn't a model of discipline on the rugby field, but um, I remember once the, the, the other team were frustrating us and finally the, the referee had had enough and he sent one of them off. Uh, and I, because I couldn't help myself, said, good on you, ref, well done. And he said, and you can go too, because you're, <laughs> you're just as bad as them. And uh, that's what this chapter's doing. Now, you see, there is something right about that reaction to chapter 1. There's something right to say, yes, I hate the way our world is. I, I, I hate the sin of our world. Too many of us, I think modern Christians, have become inoculated against sin. Uh, too many modern Christians, we, we start to talk the way our world does 
about sin. Our, our world says these things are awful. Our world says these things are listed out in last week's passage are terrible and we call them lifestyle choices like, like our, our world does. No, God hates sin and, and so should we hate sin. But it's very easy to go from that to, to starting to think that we are better than those people Paul is describing. Uh, and those two groups, by the way, are nothing new in the church. See, in the Roman church, there would have been Gentiles sitting there saying, that is exactly what I was like. Why is Paul describing exactly me? I, I used to go to the temple and worship idols. I was involved in, in all those sins. That is, that is me. Many of the Jews sitting there listening and some of the God-fearing Gentiles would have been saying, that wasn't me. I've always worshipped the one true God. I've never worshipped idols. I've never even heard of some of those sins that, that, that Paul is describing. I'm so glad I don't deserve God's wrath like they do. And it's to that person that Paul now turns, or perhaps that part of you, if you're someone with a foot in both those cans. It's actually really clever how he does it. Go back to chapter one. Do you notice how it was all them and they last week? Those people out there, this is how they live. Now he changes to you. And he says, hang on, don't you judge, because I'm talking about you too. And so what I've called this first part is God's wrath on the self-righteous. Look with me from chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. So he's talking to the Jews here who thought because they had God's law, they were better than, than those idolaters, those pagans. But he's saying, be very careful because you might have God's law, but do you actually keep it? Look at verse 3. He says, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, you do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Well, down at verse 13, he says, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. See, his point is, you, you might have God's law. You might know it really, really well, but do you do it? Really? I think at this point he's got the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in his mind. It's like he's channeling the, the Sermon on the Mount. You, you, you mightn't have done all these things I say that they do, but can you really tell me you haven't hated? Can, can you really tell me you haven't been envious and lusted? Really? Can you really tell me that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Because that's what the Lord demands. Can, can you really tell me you've loved your neighbour as yourself? Because that's what God's law demands. You see, we human beings, we are very, very good at judging other people and excusing ourselves, aren't we? We're really, really good at that. That's why Jesus talked so much about it. Uh, Dave brought up last week from that, that list of sins, he brought up the sin of, of envy and jealousy. And he made me think how, how when we see the sin of envy and jealousy in others, we think, gee, that's ugly. Gee, gee that's awful. And even while we're thinking that, we turn and go, but gee, I like what she's got. Do you see the, the perversity of our sin? That, that we judge it in other people while excusing it in ourselves in the same breath. You see, knowing God's law wasn't meant to make them feel superior. It wasn't meant to make them judge other people for their sin. It was meant to lead them to see their own sin, then repent of it and turn and find forgiveness. Look at verse 4. He says, or do you despise the riches of his God's kindness, restraint and patience, not recognising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? He's saying, no, if you want to say, look at me, 
are much better than those awful sinners over there, then be very careful. And verse 5 rams at home. He says, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And really, this is the big point of this chapter, the point to take away. All have sinned. There is no one righteous. All people deserve God's judgment. We all love to compare ourselves to others. Gives us comfort to think there are worse sinners than me. Paul says, don't worry about others. Worry about yourself. There is a day of wrath. Worry about yourself on that day. Now, as hard as it is, let's think about that day, the day of wrath. Uh, You see, it's interesting. This is why we preach through the Bible chapter by chapter. Some people say to me, why do we do that, Phil? Why do, we, why do we start at chapter one of a book and go right through that chapter? Uh, why don't we pick topics? Why don't you think, th- pick things that are relevant topics and talk about, which we do do once in a while, but, but why do we do that? It's because if I was choosing the topics, I would never choose to preach on the day of wrath, would I? You, you know what I mean? I like people to like me. You mightn't think so, but I, I do. I like people to like And preaching on the day of wrath upsets people. That's why we do this. So we can't skip anything. So last week, remember back in chapter one, we saw how God's wrath is actually on display now. See, as people throw themselves into sin, they think they're showing their freedom, you know, to be what they want to be, do what they want to do, that, that, that sort of stuff. Actually, it's God's judgment on them. You see, handing them over to their destructive behaviour. Uh, Troy used the image last week in, in his sermon at 6.30 Church of the father who catches his son smoking a cigarette and then makes him smoke the whole pack till he's sick. So he sees this is what this sinful behaviour does to you. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a sin. Anyway, don't worry about that. And I don't know what the vaping equivalent is for today, but you get the point. You see, the further we move away from God's ideas of right and wrong, we actually damage ourselves. This is the great lie of our world. They think, oh, freedom from what the church used to tell me, what God says will will set me free. Actually, we're just damaging ourselves and that's why our world descends further and further into despair and hopelessness the further it moves from God's standards. God's wrath is already revealed on our world. You see it in the way people throw themselves into sin. But chapter two tells us that is only the beginning. Chapter 2 tells us all of history is heading to this one day, a judgment day. When Christ will return in glory, he will judge everyone and it will be a day of wrath. Now, no one likes that idea, do they? No one thinks, yes, good, good idea. We struggle. If you don't struggle with this, there's something wrong with you. Come and talk to me. We'll get you help. because We struggle with the idea of God judging humanity. But if you think about it, any alternative is far worse. Any alternative is far worse. The idea that God would just let people get away with things for all eternity would mean God doesn't care. He doesn't care about justice. There is a day of wrath because God is righteous and because God is loving. And here is the big point of our chapter that our chapter is making about it. There will be no favoritism on that day. See, the Jews thought we're going to get special treatment as God's chosen people. Many, many Jews actually, I, I joked before about looking forward to the judgment day, they did. Because their thought was, we will be excluded from it and all those pagan Gentiles out there, they will get judged. Now, he, he focuses on that down in verses 17 to 29. We won't look at that closely this morning, but in your gospel team, have a look at those verses. 
But the apostle is saying, no, 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 whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whatever your race, whatever your nationality, it doesn't matter, God will judge everyone. Like he says at verse 11, look at verse 11, there is no favoritism with God. And there's no favoritism because we will all be judged on the basis of our works. Now at this point I want to say, please make sure you listen to the whole sermon today. Uh, I am a realist and I know that one or two of you sometimes tune out during my sermons, you, you know, one, one or two only, uh, not as many as with other preachers, but no, no, no. <laughs> I want you to listen to it all, because if you went out with just part of the sermon today, you wouldn't have the whole picture. So you, you hang in there, listen to it all. Look at verse 6. He says, he, God, will repay each one according to his works. When we stand before God on that last day, whoever we are, God will judge us according to the way we have lived here on earth. And it says there are two potential outcomes we see them in verses 7 to 10. Firstly, there is life. Look at verse 7. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. But then there's the path to God's wrath, the other option. Look at verse 8. But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth but are obeying unrighteousness. If we disobey God's truth, if we put ourselves first, if we are self-seeking, God's wrath is our fate. That's what he's saying. Now remember, he's talking about the judgment part here, not how we're saved from that judgment, not yet anyway. So what's the point he's making? He's saying it is not just those sexually promiscuous, evil-loving pagans of chapter 1 who will be judged for the way they've lived. Everyone will be. Even you Jews, even you morally superior people who have God's law and seem to be so much more righteous, everyone will be judged. There is no favoritism with God. But someone might say, what about if they didn't know God's standards? So if you think back then, the Jews had the law, they had the Bible or the Old Testament. They knew God's standards. They knew the law they were breaking. Other people didn't know what was right or wrong. You know, how is it fair? It's a good question, isn't it? It's amazing how that's one of the most common questions at the life course that people ask as we sit around tables together. And he answered it a bit last week in chapter one. Do you remember? I hope you had a spirited discussion about this in your gospel team like we did. He, he said, just by living in this world, every person has enough evidence to mean we are guilty of rejecting God. Every person is without excuse. Even if we've never heard the Bible, we know enough to be guilty of failing to honour God. Now, he adds a bit more to that. You see, he says, the judgment day will be fair because people will be judged according to their knowledge. Look with me at verse 12. He says, all those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who sinned under the law would be judged by the law. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, Jews who have God's law will be judged for failing to keep God's law. That God will say to them, you had the Ten Commandments. What were you doing? Gentiles who've never heard God's law, they'll still be judged, but not by that standard. So what standard by the way, this isn't actually that relevant to everyone here because you've got God's word, but, but for people out there, okay. So what standard does God judge people who haven't heard his law by? Well, he says Gentiles who've never heard the Ten Commandments should still know right and wrong. And that's his point there in verse 14. Look there. He says, so when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, 
They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. I think the point he's making here is that a Gentile who's never heard the law should still be able to discern right and wrong. You shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know that that, that God deserves glory and honour. That was the point of Romans 1. You shouldn't need a commandment to tell you that. You shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know not to keep your hands off other people's property. You shouldn't need the, the Ten Commandments to know not to murder, not to be unfaithful, not to lie. So when we stand before God, we will be judged according to what we know. A Jew who knows the law will be judged according to the law and will be without excuse. A Gentile who'd never heard God's law will still be judged, but according to what they should understand from what has been revealed to them and will be without excuse. The point is, God is fair. And more than that, do you notice there in verse 16, come to verse 16, God won't judge just according to what we see. Human beings are going to get a lot of surprises on the judgment day. There'll be people who we stood in judgment over, who who God will will look on more favourably, and people who we thought were pretty special, who God will judge more harshly. You see, God judges what people have kept secret. He judges the very thoughts and inclinations of our hearts. I think that is one of the scariest thoughts in all of Scripture. It's very easy to appear moral and upright to the people around us, but you cannot hide the reality of your heart from God. The reality is there will be a lot of hypocrites who will be exposed on the judgment day. There will be a lot of people who have put on a, a veneer of morality to cover all sorts of secret sins. There'll be people who say, but I was a church elder. I was even on the parish council. And God will say, I know how you treated your family. People will say, but I never committed really bad sins like the people out there. But God will say, I know the hate in your heart. I know the way you stood in judgment over people all the time. I never committed adultery. God will say, I know the lustful thoughts you entertained and the pornography you watched in secret. I never stole anything. But God will say, I know the way you coveted. I know how you were never content with what I gave you. It's very sobering, isn't it? This passage is is meant to be sobering because that is the judgment day. And the whole point of chapter 2 is everyone will face it and no one will be able to stand there and say, like the children disciplined by their parents, that's not fair. No one will be able to say that to God on that day. And so as we read this, we're meant to ask, So what will happen to me on that day of wrath? When God exposes the secrets of my heart, when my works are judged against the standards of his law, how will I go? Let me tell you, I will fail. I will fall short. I will deserve God's wrath. And if you think you won't fail, go back to verse 1 and start reading again because you're exactly who Romans chapter 2 is written to. The whole point of Romans 1 and 2 is to show us that whether we are the immoral pagan of chapter 1 or the self-righteous Pharisee of chapter 2, we deserve God's righteous wrath. I've purposely tried to tone down any humour today. You might think I'm never funny, but you know, I've, I've tried to tone it down today. And I've done that on purpose because these chapters are actually meant to drive us to despair. 
That sounds a horrible thing. I've come out on a Sunday morning to be driven to despair, but, but that's what they're meant to do. They're here in the Bible to show us the reality of our situation. It's meant to get us to what he will say in chapter 3, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. See, chapter 2 is here so that when we get to chapter 3, we will grasp just how much we need God's salvation. Whatever you do, remember I said before, whatever you do, don't tune out during, tune out during today's sermon. Whatever you do, don't miss next week and the week after. Because I would hate you to walk away from church at the end of Romans 2 and think that's the end of the story. You see, whatever you do, don't do that because that's where we'll find the answer to our problem, the solution that Jesus has died to take the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself and that we accept that gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, you might think, why not go straight to chapter 3 then, Phil? Why didn't you just sort of jump there and, and just do a quick summary of these chapters so, so we can get to the good stuff of chapter 3? I'll tell you why not. It's because you can only ever truly grasp the wonder of God's grace when you first grasp the depth of your own sin and the rightness and certainty of your own judgment. Over the years, that is actually my test of whether people have really got the gospel. My test is, do they want to pray that prayer of confession when we pray it together? That's the test. The test of whether you've got the gospel is, do you understand the depths of your own sin? Because it's only when you understand that and the certainty of our coming judgment do you actually understand how wonderful the grace of God is and how wonderful the gift of forgiveness in Christ is. You see, we can only see how wonderful the light is when you've actually realised what a dark place you are in. You only understand how beautiful the light is when you've been in total darkness. If you think you're good enough for God, you'll never grasp why you need Jesus. You'll never grasp it. This is a dark chapter, but it's actually wonderful in its way because what it does is it will help us see the beauty of the light that we're going to get to in chapter 3. But remember I said you've got to keep listening. There is an issue here that I haven't quite addressed yet. I hope you've noticed it. For those of us who are really thinking hard, you would have been uncomfortable with Romans 2 as it was read out. If you're really thinking hard, now you're thinking, maybe I don't think hard enough, because I wasn't, but you would have thought, what a, did, did Keith get it wrong? Did Sandra get it wrong? Did they, did they say some words wrong as they read that out? And is Phil, was Phil wrong before? And I don't just mean all the talk of wrath and judgment. Look again at verses 6 and 7. It says, he will re, God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good Seek glory, honour and immortality. That just doesn't seem right, does it? Verse 13 says something similar. It doesn't seem right to our Protestant ears. We, we say, but hang on, isn't Phil always telling us that we're saved by grace alone, not by our works? That seems to be saying you can be saved by your works. So no, you know, doesn't Phil always say grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? I hope you think I say that all the time. But it seems like here he's saying it might be possible to earn eternal life if you would just persist in doing good. Now, he cannot be saying that. I'll tell you why. Because he gets to chapter 3 and says, I'm not saying that. So, so he, can't, he's not, he doesn't change his mind between chapters. In chapter 3, he gets to the climax. He tells us there is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. He actually uses the same words he's used through, through chapter 2. The only way to find eternal life, to be declared righteous, the only way is by faith in Jesus. 
Never let anyone tell you you can be good enough. The only way is if Jesus takes away our sin and gives us the gift of righteousness. No one can earn that. It's a free gift of God. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So then given that's a given, what's he saying here? I think there's two legitimate possibilities and both are true from elsewhere in Scripture. And you might want to think about these two possibilities in your gospel team during the week. The first possibility is he's describing the Christian in verses like verse 6 and 7 and verse 13. Because he's describing the person who has come to know Jesus and so now is trusting in Jesus and because of that is doing good works that God says, good on you for doing those good works, because the only works that are pleasing to God are works that are done because of our faith in Jesus. And, and so it, it's, it's someone doing good works because they trust in Jesus. So it might be describing that. I think Christians actually often forget this. Uh, we rightly focus on the fact we cannot earn our salvation, but we forget our works will still be judged. We, we've already been declared righteous through faith in Christ, our salvation is not at stake, but even so, our works will be judged by God on that day. God loves good works that flow out of our faith in Jesus. Key verse on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It's on the screen, or it'll come up on the screen. And it says this, it says, For we must all, it's talking about Christians, appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying our good works done in faith, the, the, the things we've done because of what Christ has done for us, they will be rewarded by God on the judgment day and some will actually be burnt away and, and shown to be worthless. There is still a judgment of works for Christians. Understand that. Do not waste your life. Use it well for Jesus. Live for his glory. Seek to honour him. Ephesians 2.10, do the good works. God has prepared in advance for us to do. And on that day, those good works we do will be the evidence of our faith. God won't say, I'm saving you because of your good works, but he'll look at your good works and say, that shows the reality of your faith. That shows that you do trust in Jesus. See, the evidence will be put forward at that tribunal. The evidence will be the good works we've done because we know Jesus. We're saved by faith alone, we are justified by faith alone, but a true and living faith will always show itself. It will be evidenced by our good works. And so, come back to Romans 2, that is one possibility of what this is talking about here. That's talking about Christians, and on that judgment day, God will look at our works, our persistence in doing good, seeking after his honour and glory, and he'll look at that as evidence of our faith, and he'll reward it. Now, that is certainly true from other parts of Scripture. I don't think it's what he's saying here in this passage. So sorry to have spent so long on it. But, uh, but the reason I do is lots of people smarter than me think that, and so I thought I should do it justice. Here's what I think. I think he's talking about the standard that we do not reach. I think here Paul isn't talking about our salvation yet. He's going to get to that in chapter 3, as I keep saying. He's just talking about the judgment of God and he's establishing God's standards and he's talking about the fact that it will be totally fair. And so if it is totally fair, he's saying, well, if you did keep the whole law, God is fair and God would give you eternal life. If you really did persist in doing God and seeking after his good and, and seeking after his honour and glory, if you really did love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, if you really did love your neighbour as yourself, you would be righteous. 
You would receive eternal life. God is fair. He judges according to his law. But the problem is, apart from Jesus, no one does. So when we get to chapter 3 next week, Paul will say, actually, no one truly does seek God. No one truly does chase after his glory. No one is righteous, not even one. And so our only hope on that judgment day is to trust in Christ and his righteousness. Our only hope is to not try to justify ourselves to God. Our only hope is to not try and tell God how righteous we are or how we're better than other people. Our only hope is to say, no, 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 I'm a sinner just like that guy in Romans 1. I'm a sinner just like him, but I trust in Jesus. See, that is the main point of this passage. There will be a judgment day. And it will be totally fair. There'll be no leave passes because you are a Jew or a Gentile. There'll be no leave passes because you went to church or because you were baptised as a child. And God will not be particularly interested in the fact that you're better than the guy that came before. And he won't be particularly interested in the fact that you're worse than the girl that came before. God isn't interested in the fact that you aren't a debauched pagan, but actually you're quite respectable. God is not interested in the fact that you are comparatively moral. He's not interested in the fact that you're well-respected even in the church community. In fact, if anything, God will hold us to a higher standard. If anything, God will hold to a higher standard those who had greater opportunities to hear his word. God's judgment will be horrible for the churchgoer who sat under his word week in, week out, but did not turn and trust in Christ. God's judgment will be horrible for those who've heard his word, clearly taught, and instead of admitting their own sin, have stood in judgment over other people. This chapter is a reminder, God hates sin, but he also hates pride, and he hates self-righteousness, but he offers grace to both. You see, in fact, God offers grace to anyone, from the idolatrous pagan of chapter 1 to the self-righteous Pharisee of chapter 2. God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone who will admit their sin, repent, and turn and trust in Jesus. Praise God for Romans chapter 2, as hard as it is. Praise God that he is both righteous and loving. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray knowing full well that we are sinners, but that also all too often we excuse our own sin and judge it in others. We repent of that. We repent of our attempts to think that we might be good enough for you. And instead, we just turn to you in thanks and praise because you have sent the Lord Jesus to die for us so that we might be declared righteous. And so, Father, help us never to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but instead to always see ourselves clearly and so therefore see just how wonderful Jesus is. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.